0: You've heard our open themes with listeners talking about their vocations.
1: Ah. New Hampshire shepherdesses love to listen to issues, etc. Ah.
0: Or what they're doing while listening to issues, etc.
1: New parents love listening to issues, etc.
0: In the middle of the night. We're looking for more of these elements to include in our open themes. Tell us about your vocation, hobby, or what you do while listening to Issues Etc. Call the Issues Etc. comment line 24-7 at 618-223-8382. If you make a mistake, just start over. 618-223-8382. Thanks for listening, and thanks for contributing to Issues Etc. 618 223 8382.
2: Basically, you can't have a hate crime against a group that Yale Law School, Harvard Law School, and the New York Times and NPR don't think is an oppressed minority.
1: And I think that now it is very important to encourage Christians in Finland and everywhere that now it is the time to be open, not to be silent, to be open about your faith.
3: In those kinds of
1: services we have what are called praise teams. I've often wondered why there aren't lament teams. The Bible is not primarily what I would call an upward-looking book, but it's a forward-looking book. So it's it's not a book that's so much concerned about the die and go to heaven piece, but it's more concerned. I mean, the thing it's fixated on is the resurrection and the renewal of all things.
0: This is Pastor Michael and Lindsay Schmidt of Natoma, Kansas. And whenever we go on vacation, we always take along issues etc. to help pass the interstate miles.
3: Issues etc. Talk Radio for the Vacationing Lutheran Family.
0: More Mangley, please.
1: The New York Times like much of the legacy media is not known, at least its news division, not known for a capacity of self-reflection, but occasionally on their op-ed pages, you will find someone writing there who's capable of doing that. David Brooks is an example, recently wrote one that I think got him into trouble with a lot of the uh, cocktail party set in New York and Washington, D.C. His piece titled, What If We're the Bad Guys Here? Greetings and welcome to Issues Etc. Live on this Wednesday afternoon, August the 9th. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. Terry Mattingly of Get Religion will join us to talk about this New York Times op-ed about cultural elitism. We'll discuss the vocation of midwife with Sandra Bowlesman of Homespun Beginnings. Melanie Standiford, former news director for KNOP-TV in North Platte, Nebraska, will tell her story about getting fired for her pro-life activities. And then we'll round everything off today with Pastor John Leach of Truth and Love Ministries. We'll discuss witnessing to Mormons. Terry Mattingly is Senior Fellow at the Overby Center for Southern Journalism and Politics at the University of Mississippi. He's founder and editor of Get Religion, author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion. Terry, welcome back.
2: Glad to be here.
1: Brooks does not mention religion in his controversial New York Times piece. It's about issues of class. What does religion have to do with this controversy, especially when it comes to journalism? (laughs)
2: Oh, mercy. I think the easiest way to answer that question is to ask our listeners to think back over the last 20-something years of American political life and cultural life and try to remember the famous maps that have been printed over and over to define the divides in American culture. And this came down to, we talked about red states and blue states, because that's how you divide it politically. But if you really want to look at it, there was another map you needed, and that's where you needed to look at red zip codes and blue zip codes in American life. In other words, where were the conservative zip codes and where were the liberal zip codes? Where... Defining this, of course, in terms of politics, because as we all know, politics is the only thing that matters. But what I thought was fascinating was that instantly, when the George W. Bush versus Al Gore election map came out, that was when this USA Today's red and blue map was what made this famous. Immediately, a meme jumped on to the internet, which I want our listeners to try to remember, and that was where they took the map of north america and divided it into red and blue and do you remember the name that was attached to the red part of that map i do not jesus land jesus land now the blue parts were called lots of different things in different versions of this map one was the united states of canada that was one name the republic of Intellect and Reason was another slightly snarkier version. But universally, the red states were called Jesus Land. And that's essentially the religion component of the David Brooks controversy. Because when you look at statistics about American life, you would say, is there a religious component to the red versus blue? map at the heart of American politics? Of course there is. They wouldn't have called it Jesus Land otherwise if there wasn't a moral and cultural religion there. Is there a religious component to who goes into what professions in American life? Brooks's piece is all about issues of class and control of the professions, and he talks about the fact that there obviously is kind of a blue-collar, ordinary America. And then there is a kind of an elite America in terms of the jobs that people get and, once again, and where they live, which brings us back to the zip code. Is there a religious component to how Americans vote? Well, over the last 30 years at least, and it's become stronger and stronger, in most recent presidential elections, we had this factor, which I've written about, gosh, at least 20 times in my columns. If you combine that, we get religion, and it comes up all the time. And it's what people call the Pew Gap. That's not a reference to the Pew Research Center, it's a reference to church pews. And basically, if you want to research how people vote in American politics, the more often People attend worship services the more likely it is that they will vote for morally and culturally conservative candidates and of course that's usually defined in terms of Democrats versus Republicans but in large part that's because the pro-life the old blue dog or more conservative element of the Democratic Party has been all but crushed and eliminated from political reality in American life. I remember there was a study that was done, I believe it was the Bob Dole versus Bill Clinton election. And they set out to find out what were the key factors that separated one set of voters in America from another. I remember there was a classic piece, I believe in the Atlantic, that talked about this divide. And they found that the more likely people believed and how people answered like four or five different questions determined was who they voted for, the most reliable factors for who they voted. One was, is adultery always wrong? One was, do you use pornography? Another was, is religion extremely important in your life? And basically four of the five questions, basically came down to issues of morality and religion and at least i should say especially when you look in the internet age with issues of pornography i think you would say that this is what people would claim they were believing or practicing or whatever but the more likely you were to take the liberal stance on those issues on homosexuality adultery and a whole lot of moral questions the more likely you were to vote for Bill Clinton, the more likely you checked the traditional conservative position on those questions, the more likely you were to have voted for Bob Dole. And the people that were doing this survey were working for the Clinton campaign. And they needless to say didn't set out to discover this, but they found that the religious and moral component was the strongest factor in American politics. So. This brings us back to Brooks. We seemly have to ask, does Brooks realize the role that religion plays in his column? He never addresses it, but does he know it's there? Does he realize that many of these questions of divisions in our culture, and he specifically mentions divisions in academia versus divisions in journalism, politics, etc. does he realize religion plays a strong role in that? And for personal reasons, including an interview I did with him more than 20 years ago, I believe he knows it's there. But I think he knows that if he mentions it in a New York Times op-ed, that if you thought this column created a firestorm the way it was written, if he had included religion in the equation, it really would have blown up.
1: What about that interview that you did with Hmm. him indicates to you that even though he's not including it in the column, he's aware of it being a major factor? Well, back in
2: the the first time that I moved to the Washington, D.C. area, David Brooks had just published a wild book called Bobo's in Paradise. And bobo was a word he made up that stood for bourgeois bohemians. Now, if you read his current column and apply the term bourgeois bohemians, once again, that's essentially what he's writing about. And when I talked to him, I remember going, he was writing for the Weekly Standard, that kind of moderate conservative magazine. And he was, you can get all kinds of answers now if you ask people, what is David Brooks in terms of being a religious believer? There are people who claim he's become an evangelical Christian. There are people who say, well, no, he's just an Episcopalian now. At the time, of course, there are evangelical Episcopal congregations. When I met him, he was a liberal progressive Jew. But when you walked into his office in the Weekly Standard, sitting across from his desk was a bookshelf packed with books by C.S. Lewis, which I thought was a fascinating (laughs) thing to have been there. Let me just read you a little bit of – one is a quote from that book, the Bobos in Paradise book. Uh, He said, the yin-yang worldview, part 60s idealism, part 80s work ethic and success now defines academia, politics, Hollywood, and recently Wall Street. He said this in 2001. The bourgeois bohemians, said Brooks, struggle when they try to fly solo through life's major transitions, such as marriage, birth, and death. Quote, Can you have freedom as well as roots? Can you still worship God, even if you take it upon yourself to decide that many of the Bible's teachings are wrong? He asks. Can you establish ritual and order in your life when you are driven by an inner imperative to experiment constantly with new things? Jumping a little bit ahead in that book. The Bobo's are trying to build a house of obligation on a foundation of choice. I thought that was the most brilliant line in the entire book. The Bobo's are trying to build a house of obligation On a foundation of choice. In my interview with him, here's the other quote that is most relevant to our discussion. For Bobo's and their followers, said Brooks, the idea of, quote, one universal truth is not even something that they have consciously rejected. This concept is not part of their world. They have never even really considered the idea that one religion might be true and all the others false, are even that there is one true way to approach the moral universe in all others are false. And he said, but they don't consider themselves moral relativists. They make judgments all the time, but their judgments are based on, Now think about his column now, they're built on aesthetics, health, safety, science, self-esteem, and especially achievement in life, success, money, Now, you bring that back to his current column that we're discussing, once again, I think he knows there is a religious component to this, whether that fit nicely and smoothly into his column or not.
1: Terry Mattingly is our guest. We're talking about a New York Times op-ed about cultural elitism. Terry is founder and editor of Get Religion. I'm Todd Wilkin. This is Issues Etc.
2: I think satire and humor are worth defending. I think free speech is worth defending, and I think it's a tool
1: that we need to use in the church. Kyle Mann of the Babylon Bee, speaking at the 2023 Issues Etc. making the case conference. Humor is our tool. Humor is something
2: that God created. The left just co-opted it for all the terrible comedies and stuff that you see and all the vulgar stuff coming out of Hollywood. It's ours, and we're going to reclaim it, and I think that's one one of the missions of the Babylon Bee. The left wants to take down humor. The left demands that things that mock them and point out how ridiculous they are being get torn
1: down. But we're just going to keep answering that with more and more humor. And I think it starts here. It starts in the church. We need to be able to laugh at ourselves. You can watch and listen to a recording of Kyle Mann's presentation, Making the Case Against Cancel Culture, from this year's Making the Case Conference. For a donation of $300, you can download an audio and video recording. Learn more at IssuesETC.org.
0: Solid, serious, substantive. You're listening to Issues Etc. In a child's life, meaningful relationships matter when it comes to
2: academic development and spiritual nurture. In Lutheran schools, students know they are uniquely and wonderfully made in God's image. Each day in over 1,800 Lutheran schools, children experience a rich, academic, loving, and Christ centered environment where they can explore and develop their God-given talents and abilities. To find a Lutheran school near you, visit lcms.org schools.
1: Not everyone is comfortable with new technology. Dial A Podcast gives all generations of your congregation an easy way to hear your sermons or even devotionals and Bible studies. Once you've completed a simple one-time setup, we take care of the rest. All your congregants have to do is dial the number from any phone to listen to your latest podcast, all at no additional cost to them. Dial a podcast. Extend the reach of your sermons. Get started at dialapodcast.com now. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. We're talking about New York Times op-ed about cultural elitism. Terry Mattingly is our guest. San Francisco Archbishop Salvatore Cordelione's presentation at this year's Issues, Etc. Making the Case conference was the subject of Terry's latest On Religion column. You can watch the Archbishop's presentation and the entire conference for a contribution of $300 by Labor Day. We'll send you a link and a password to video and audio recordings. Learn more at issuesetc.org or by calling 618 223 8385. Terry, what did you make of Mark Hemingway's response to Brooks on World? Well, Mark,
2: much like me, read this kind of through the lens of journalism. And I think Mark was responding to kind of the role that journalism has played in many of the divides in our culture, along with education and the entertainment industry and a whole bunch of other things. But One quote in particular from the Brooks column, I think our our listeners need to hear. I think it's really kind of the nexus of this whole thing. Brooks writes, over the last decades, we've taken over whole professions and locked everybody else out. When I began my journalism career in Chicago in the 1980s, there were still some old, crusty, working-class guys around the newsroom. Now we're not only a college-dominated profession, we're an elite college-dominated profession. Only 0.8% of college students graduate from the super elite 12 schools, the Ivy League colleges plus Stanford, MIT, Duke, and the University of Chicago. A 2018 study found that more than 50% of the staff writers at the beloved New York Times and Wall Street Journal attended one of the 29 most elite universities in the world. I would notice, I've dedicated my life in recent decades to trying to get Christian colleges to take journalism more seriously because they were doing nothing to contribute professionals to that arena and yep you know we blame the media for being biased against us but our own schools did almost nothing to try to add diversity to those newsroom settings well brooks applies that to how we then talk about issues of morality and sex outside of marriage and He notes that when you tear down moral norms, those absolute truths he was talking about when I interviewed him in 2001, when you tear down concepts of absolute morality, you're giving an unfair advantage to the people who actually manage to live by them. And he pointed out the great irony that in blue zip codes, people are more likely to be married than in a lot of red zip codes, and that in the parts of our culture that are declining, and having less class mobility tend to be in red zip codes. I mean, that's one of the great paradoxes of American life. That Donald Trump, the Playboy billionaire, becomes the hero of Jesus land, you know, in terms of the elections is a tremendous irony, but Brooks wrestles with that. But listen to this Mark Hemingway quote in which he's saying Brooks needs to repent a little bit more in his column. So then a small class of elites seized power, eroded moral norms that supported class mobility, and built systems of power and money that are oppressive. But people who did this are all, quote, earnest, kind, and public-spirited, unquote. Is it just a coincidence that the legacy media has badly botched its coverage of nearly every major story in recent years? For five straight years, the Pulitzer Prizes rewarded misinformation. And it's not a coincidence all this misinformation served the interests of the educated elites looking to silence politically inconvenient truths. Well, okay, that's fascinating. And Mark is looking at that through, obviously, a politically conservative point of view. I'm looking at the whole situation more through a religious perspective. And that is essentially that this Jesus land versus elite America divide is very real. To some degree, Christian and conservative institutions deserve some blame for that, for ignoring the role of professions such as journalism or Hollywood screenwriting, or even trying to break their way into major law schools such as Harvard and Yale. We end up returning to that quote, which I'm sure some listeners are tired of me reading. We're back to that stunning opening paragraph of David French's book, Divided We Fall, America's Secession Threat and How to Restore Our Nation, when French writes, it's time for Americans to wake up to a fundamental reality. The continued unity of the United States of America cannot be guaranteed. At this moment in history, there is not a single important cultural, religious, political, or social force that is pulling Americans together more then it's pulling us apart. And in this book, important book, David French stresses the role of religion and the First Amendment and religious liberty, where it seems like his partner on the op-ed page of the New York Times, David Brooks, doesn't seem comfortable with putting the religious component in there. I would say the component is not only there, it's at the heart of our battles about journalism. And Brooks flashes back to when he entered journalism in the 1980s and said, you know, we still had some old guard in there, we had some blue collar journalists, et cetera. Yet I was struck when I read his piece, contrasting that with what I found once decades ago, when I wrote my graduate project at the University of Illinois in Urbana champaign And there had been a study of the journalists in the most powerful and elite newsrooms, the exact ones that Brooks is so interested in. And this famous survey, infamous some would say, on the media elites noted that the single greatest division between those elite journalists and the rest of the nation was religious practice. How often they went to church and what they believed on religious and moral issues. That was already present in the late 70s and the early 80s. And the late George Cornell, one of the greatest religion writers who ever lived and who worked at the Associated Press, George Cornell had a chance to actually study the ballots for this poll. And George told me, it's in my graduate project in Urbana, and I have it in the freelance section at tmat.net, my website. He said that secularism was the predominant characteristic of the elite media. And he noted that 50% of the respondents, 50% of the journalists who took the poll in the survey slot labeled religion, 50% of them wrote the word none. Not raised Catholic, don't go that much. Not Episcopalian, I don't agree with the evangelical, not anything, just None. And what Cornell told me, since he actually looked at the ballots, was that a striking number of those ballots, when they wrote the word none in with their pen, they underlined in bold, they underlined boldly the word none to stress the point, I have no religion. And that was, he thought, the single strongest characteristic that he saw in this survey of elite journalists in the blue zip codes of the Northeast and the prime media territory of the West Coast. No religion. None. And, I, and I'm proud of that. I'm going to underline it. And that was the late 70s. You, you wonder, what does that look like today? Does that religion factor still help explain some of what David Brooks is writing about?
1: If anyone were to have the courage to kind of throw their hat in the ring with David Brooks and write a follow-up, what kind of additional information would you want to see in a column that says, look, let's just suppose for a moment that we are not as virtuous as we believe ourselves to be, and maybe we actually are the bad guys, what would you be looking for?
2: Well, you know, they do podcasts, and I... um I would love to hear a New York Times podcast featuring David Brooks and David French talking about this exact column and this topic and where they agree and where they disagree on this. And I would love to hear it begin with the reading of those crucial paragraphs at the start of David's book. I think that would be a handy way to handle this within the context of the new york times i've also thought the reverend tish warren who is an ordained anglican evangelical female pastor in in the more conservative side of anglicanism has just finished her tenure as a new york times columnist in one of their subscriber newsletters and i've been pulling aside some of her final columns and I'm looking to see if she ends up dealing with a little bit of this divide within America as well. And once again, I didn't create the terms. Actually it was funny people on the left who created these terms. If you don't look at this topic and remember the Jesus Land versus the Republic of Reason and Intellect or whatever other term you want, if you don't think of it through the lens of that map. I don't think you're seeing the whole picture. Someone needs to ask Brooks the role that religion plays in the formula at the heart of this very controversial column.
1: Is this a permanent feature of American journalism, with about a minute here, that it's going to be just largely secular, enthusiastically secular?
2: Well, I would say at this point, since we've even lost the role of advertising, in balancing the need to appeal to both sides of the audience. The divide that I wrote about in my piece for the Axon Institute and the Religion and Liberty Journal on the evolving religion of journalism would certainly imply that if the American elites are consciously getting more secular, and in particular, hostile to traditional forms of religious belief, whether Jewish, Muslim, Protestant, Catholic, Orthodox, whatever, if that schism is going to continue, then yes, I think this is a permanent part of our debates about why the elite press struggles to understand the half of America that, frankly, as Brooks implies, the half of America that they just don't respect and care about.
1: Terry Mattingly is senior fellow at the Overby Center for Southern Journalism and Politics at the University of Mississippi. He is founder and editor of Get Religion, author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate, and the book Pop Goes Religion. Terry, thank you very much.
2: Glad to be here.
1: When we come back, we're going to talk about the vocation of midwife with Sandra Bolesman. She's owner and operator of Homespun Beginnings, and she's been a midwife for 15 years.
3: The church's music from the 2nd century.
1: Of youth, guiding in love truth.
3: The 6th century. Day, day the 12th century. 16th century. The 21st
1: century.
3: The best of the church's music from the past two thousand years. LutheranPublicRadio.org.
2: Essential exercise for the Christian mind. You're listening to Issues, etc.
3: When you hear the word heresy, what do you think of? Do you think of some ancient debate the church has gotten over and forgotten? Do you think of some stubby old theologians just arguing over things that don't matter? There's a lot more to heresies than you might think. And that's what the August issue of The Lutheran Witness is all about. Heresies, ancient and modern. To pick up your copy, visit cph.org witness or visit our website, witness.lcms.org to learn more. The Lutheran Witness, helping you interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective.
0: Memoria Press is a family-run publisher of classical Christian education materials for homeschools and private schools. Every page of the Memoria Press curriculum leads students to a mastery of content, an understanding of the classical heritage of the Christian West, and an appreciation of truth, goodness, and beauty. If you're interested in learning more, visit memoriapress.com and use the coupon code LPR23. Memoria Press, saving Western civilization one student at a time. memoriapress.com